I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. I'm Gene Zembi, and this is Code Switch. From NPR. Right, Shireen, I'm curious, because I know this has to happen to you a lot, but how many times <laughs> in your life have you been asked, where are you from? Gene, that is a defining characteristic of what it means to be Shireen Marisol Meraji. <laughs> that is my life. I'm, I'm guessing you probably have a, a good answer to it by now, right? <laughs> uh, No. You have guessed wrong, actually. I I think that despite how frequently I get asked that question, I I still hesitate when it comes to answering it because it's it's like, what is that question trying to get at? And I feel like now I know that it's usually a question trying to get at what my racial or ethnic makeup is because I'm confusing. (laughs) You know, people are like, wait, why is her name Shireen? But wait, why does she pronounce things in Spanish right? Um, So yeah, so is that the question you're asking? Are you like asking me what my racial or ethnic makeup is? Right, right, right. (laughs) Um, And and it's just not easy to answer for people like me. Uh, You know, those of us out there who are Iranian-American and Puerto Rican. Uh, uh, Wait, Shireen, are you Iranian-American and Puerto Rican? (laughs) Are you? Gene, I am. I can't believe I haven't told you that yet. You haven't. You haven't. It's the first time it's ever come up. (laughs) Anyway, um, where am I from? Like, I don't even know how to answer the direct question being asked. Hmm. Am I supposed to say, I'm from Southern California, where I've been living for a hot minute now? Or should I say, I'm from Northern California, where I grew up? Or should I say I'm from the Central Valley, which is where I was born? Shout out to Fresno. Fresno Fresno never gets a shout out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I've only visited my family in Puerto Rico uh, many times over my life, but I've Mm -hmm. never really lived there. Shout out to Vieques. Um, And I've never been to Iran. So can I say I'm from those places? It's just it's it's all very complicated. Vieques and Fresno. (laughs) Vieques and Fresno, two places that do not get a lot of shout outs. (laughs) It seems like, though, if you wanted, you could dedicate like a whole ass podcast episode to getting people just to grapple with that question, though. Oh, yeah. Like, how it lands on them, when they get asked it, how they feel about it. And as it happens... Where are you from? Where do you come from? What seems like an easy question... No, where are you really from? ...carries with it so much weight. Where do you belong? In the in-between. I belong to myself. It's an emotional environment. Soy de aquí. Hmm. Well, as luck would have a gene, our play cousin, Anjali Sastry, who's a producer here at NPR, has been working on an audio and video series examining this question, where are you from? And she's here to tell us all about it. Hey, Anjali. What's good, Anjali? Hey, Shireen. Hey, Jean. Anjali, I'm so glad you're here because I've been hearing about this idea for months now, and it's finally become a reality. Your new series is called Where We Come From. Tell us more about it. Yeah, Shereen. So in this series, I'm talking to immigrants of color and their kids to answer that where we come from question one conversation at a time. And what's cool, too, is you're not going to hear me or any other host interviewing these folks like you would normally hear on NPR. Uh, Okay. Cutting Uh, us out of the equation. I don't know how I feel about that. Kind of, kind of. Well, I wanted people to be able to really take control of their own stories. Like, they should be the ones doing interviews and getting to ask questions of their family members, friends, experts about their personal histories on their own terms. Like, these are conversations they're already having, and I'm just trying to give them a platform to tell these stories. Ooh, Mm, I like it. Just eavesdropping. So we're turning over control. (laughs) Ooh, you know I don't like to do that, Gene. I know, I know. The control freaking me. Absolutely. (laughs) What's your sign again? Anyway, so Anjali, who are we going to hear from today? 
So we're going to hear from a law student and immigration activist. His name is Cesar Magaña Linares. He'll be talking with a couple people, including his former speech coach, Cameron Logston, um, because Cesar and Cam went through this pretty pivotal time together, which they're going to share about in a minute. Mm. Vague description, which I like, makes me want to listen right now. So I'm not going to ask you anything else about Caesar because, you know, the whole point of this is about Caesar telling his own story. So, Gene, let's get out of the way and say bye to Anjali. Bye, Anjali. Bye, Anjali. I'm doing the little um, the ninja smoke puff thing. Poof. Disappear. Bye, Gene. <laughs> bye, Shireen. Okay, so that age-old question, where do you come from? Here's how Caesar answers. I am very proud to tell people that I am Salvadoran. I am also a Nebraskan. I enjoy listening to country music. I like going to Casey's General Store. I like taking long drives in the middle of rural Nebraska. I come from a small country, and I come from a small town. And Caesar, he's the kind of person who really loves to just talk to people. I'm a very open book. I also like educating people. I like telling people about things that they might not know. It's probably why he joined the debate team in high school and then the speech team in college at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Caesar's former speech coach, Cameron Logston, says Caesar definitely schooled some other kids on the speech team. You stood out right away as somebody that was probably ahead of some of the other students and maybe a little bit aware that you were ahead of some of the other students. So you so start- I was very conceited. Uh, <laughs> I won't say conceited, but you, uh, you didn't hold back when you were ready to argue with somebody. Fortunately, I usually agreed with whatever opinion you were bringing to the table, so I didn't get too much in your way. Doing the speech team, it becomes a big part of Caesar's life. There's several hours of practice every week, weekend-long tournaments for most of the school year. And these people, his teammates in camp, they're becoming like his family because they're spending so much time together in cars, in practice, eating meals together, sharing the stresses and joys of life. It's another part of Caesar's Where We Come From story. That's because Speech Team was the safe place for Caesar, where he could express himself about the stuff he dealt with growing up in Nebraska, like being a person of color in his hometown. I grew up in a very, I'll just say a very racist town. I grew up in Fremont, Nebraska, which in the early 2010s made a bunch of news because they had an ordinance saying that landlords cannot rent property to undocumented immigrants. So... I remember growing up, taking grocery store trips with my parents. You get looks, you get people that say things. And so attending college at the big city, right? Omaha's the big city, right? Um, But I mean, to me, Omaha was the big city. And taking a intro to Latin America class, while at the same time joining a speech team, I thought, you know, this, this is an opportunity for me to get to know myself better and maybe to talk about something that I never got the chance to talk to people about. So Caesar's doing speech, he's going to class, he also gets a job. On top of all of those things, he starts doing some immigration activism on campus. He advocates for folks with DACA, even though he himself isn't a DACA recipient. So I did a lot of advocacy, both directly with our local congressman and at UNO while I was studying at UNO. I remember that. I remember you being on the team and there were, I think you were talking to students from another school that was, you know, just in our region. We were at a tournament and somebody said, 
I have a question about DACA, and it, you were you're giving speeches on it, and you'd say, you know, I, this doesn't apply to me, but here's why all of this matters. This immigration activism, it's coming through in all the different facets of his life, like even while he's giving these speeches at tournaments, right? And like, let me just say it again, if it wasn't clear before, Caesar's doing a lot. And then as he's getting ready for work one day, he gets some news. President Trump has made another consequential decision regarding immigrants in this country. Nearly 200,000 Salvadorans who have been allowed to live and work in the U.S. are now being told to leave. So where were you when you found out? When I first read about the news, it was a bit of a fight, flight, freeze response. In the moment, I had to freeze because I didn't even know what to think. I ended up being late to work because I just sat in my car for like 15 or 20 minutes, not really knowing how to process the information. You know, do I think about the possibility of not being able to stay in this country? Support for NPR and Where We Come From is provided by I Am an Immigrant, a project of Forward.us Education Fund. This Immigrant Heritage Month, I Am an Immigrant is lifting up the contributions of immigrants of all backgrounds who serve in essential frontline roles to combat the COVID-19 pandemic, and historically in times of crisis throughout our country's history. Millions of individuals with immigrant backgrounds are working tirelessly to keep our communities healthy and safe. To hear their stories, visit IamanImmigrant.com slash IHM. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Marguerite Casey Foundation, which imagines a world where changemakers have the freedom to create a truly representative economy. The foundation believes representation for working people in our democracy and economy must include their ability to shape them. Shifting power, powering freedom. Learn more about the foundation at CaseyGrants.org and connect with them on Twitter at CaseyGrants. On NPR's Rough Translation... There's just fewer people that know somebody that's in the military. After 20 years of war, are civilians and military farther apart than ever? They were asking me, do you want to hear this? Do you want to know us? Listen to Homefront, the new season of Rough Translation. Hey, Anjali Sastry here, crashing code switch. So if you've listened to the show before, if you are an immigrant yourself, or if you have a relative who has this, you might have heard of a thing called Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, before. TPS lets folks from designated countries affected by things like natural disasters or armed conflict to temporarily live and work in the U.S. And Caesar, he's a TPS holder himself. The moment he described earlier, it's from the day in January 2018 when he heard the Trump administration would be ending TPS for Salvadorans. Their protected status will end by September 2019. And when Caesar heard this news, he had less than two years to figure out what to do before he was deported. Caesar was only two when he came to the U.S. from El Salvador. The Salvadoran community was the first national origin group in the U.S. that were beneficiaries of temporary protected status. That's Aureli Zimmerman. She's an assistant professor in Chicano Latino Studies at Pomona College. Her research focuses on Central American immigration and activism of undocumented folks in the U.S., and just like for Caesar, Aureli's work is super personal to her. My parents, you know, immigrated from El Salvador. My dad was undocumented when he came to the U.S. And the roadblocks to becoming permanent residents were different than they are today. And here's why. 
There was already an established kind of transnational migration between the U.S. and Central America, specifically El Salvador, because of the economic linkages between the countries. And so you had Central American migration to New Orleans, to San Francisco because of coffee. We visit a coffee plantation, one of the thousands of small family-owned ranches that are the pride of El Salvador. And in the 60s and 70s, there were Salvadoran migrants, maybe about 100,000, that were already coming to the United States because of the change in immigration laws in the 1960s that allowed for family reunification and sponsorship between family members. In the decade of the 1980s, a million Salvadorans and Guatemalans were fleeing, you know, desperate situations in their home countries in the armed conflict. The people of El Salvador are caught in a web of terror, trapped between the military forces of the Arena government and the guerrilla forces of the FMLN. No one... We know that in the 1980s, about 3% of Salvadoran and Guatemalan asylum applications were accepted. This was largely to do with United States foreign policy, right? That the United States was, in fact, funding and supporting the Salvadoran government. Central America is a region of great importance to the United States. And, and so to declare these folks refugees meant that they were, in fact, admitting to the idea or the fact that the Salvadoran government was committing gross human rights violations. Today, the Salvadoran people continue to suffer as a persistent pattern of brutal human rights violations grips the nation. So many people became undocumented because they had no way to become either refugees or to claim asylum. And so they were really unrecognized Civil War refugees. The 1990 Immigration Act is the first comprehensive immigration reform in a quarter of a century. Several provisions of the Immigration Act of 1990 become the law of the land tomorrow. Among them were a temporary stay on deportation of Salvadoran refugees and... Temporary protected status was a creation of the Immigration Act of 1990. It allowed refugees to stay in the U.S. for a set time period. And Salvadoran activists were a huge part of getting TPS to happen. Congressional action was needed to address, you know, a decade of Central American migration that was basically unauthorized. What you had in 1990 was Congress recognizing, organizing in grassroots ways through the sanctuary movement, through the Central American Peace and Solidarity Movement. Okay, so if you haven't gotten it by now, TPS is exactly what it says it is, temporary. So this version of TPS that Aureli's talking about, it expired in 1992. And then there are some earthquakes in El Salvador. The death toll now stands at more than 200, with 1,000 injured and more than 1,000 others trapped inside buildings leveled by landslides. After those earthquakes in 2001, the U.S. kept extending TPS for Salvadorans. Until 2018. I'll get you back to Professor Aureli Zimmerman on the significance of Salvadoran activism later on this episode. But first, Caesar. He caught up with his former speech coach and friend, Cam Logston. Like I said before, Cam and Caesar have spent hours, days, months together working on speech team stuff. So Cam's become like family to him. So a major part of my growth was obviously my experience with the forensics team, the speech and debate team. One thing that I appreciated was that 
while you knew where you wanted to go, you still probably needed some room to grow and some time to grow. And so I was happy to be somebody to work with you in getting there, you know? So Caesar ends up at this one speech competition in 2018 in the aftermath of that TPS announcement. The news about TPS ending, it came during a hard week for Caesar. He'd been doing so much immigration advocacy work, you know, work he's doing all the time. Like I said before, this stuff also comes up in his speeches he gives at the tournaments. But this time it gets really hard because the news could totally upend Caesar's entire life. Even if you've lived through that immigrant experience that I have, it's very easy to forget the humanity of it, right? The emotional weight that comes along with that. And in that moment, Cam was there for Caesar. It was a turning point in their relationship. So now that TPS is gone, and I'm sitting in my car wondering, they can deport me now. And I got involved in the political fight. Throughout that week, I did a bunch of media inquiries. New at 10 reporter Maya Sines spoke with a local college student about his future. Maya. I went on the news. We have 18 months to fix this problem. I attended a vigil here at Creighton. Pro-immigration organizations turned a Latin American tradition, Las Posadas, and turned it into an immigration advocacy event. And I try to do my best going around campus advocating for myself and people in a similar situation to mine. It ended up building into a lot of exhaustion. I want to ask about that because you were, like the whole time I knew you, you were already doing this kind of work. But it was never, you were never really speaking on behalf of yourself. Did you feel more tired, I guess, like having to do it and also live it? Yeah, it's because obviously when you advocate for certain things on a political level, things that are very close to your heart, you still try to avoid using yourself as an example because you don't want people to say, you know, you're doing this out of self-interest. When there's something very eminent happening like that, you have no choice but to use the story that you can tell best and quickly. And that is your own political story. And it culminated into something that I hadn't experienced before uh, at the end of that week, which you were present there for, uh, yeah. you might remember. I do remember it. And it's interesting talking about this now because you're talking about the week that led up to the big national level tournament and we had to drive 16 hours to get there. Uh, it's exhausting. There's a lot of work that leads up to it, but you were busy doing all these other things. So we go to this national tournament and it's a two day tournament, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And at the very end of that Sunday, I was hanging out with one of my teammates and I all of a sudden felt really lightheaded and then I realized I had to get away. So I physically got up and just told my teammate who was next to me, I, I can't do this, I'm sorry. And I just stormed off into a hallway where I knew nobody was. And as I started walking, I felt myself just kind of break down and I started crying. Before that, I don't remember any time where I had cried in school, right? I, it just never happened. That's where you come in because my teammate who was there saw me and called you in and I remember you showing up. So I think at that point I realized that you can do as much as you can to fight and be an advocate and become educated on these issues. 
but you can't do anything about your vulnerabilities. When I first heard that somebody came and grabbed me and they said, hey, you need to go find Caesar. I said, why? What's going on? It's Caesar. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? Why? So he's not doing well. And I couldn't wrap my head around. I was like, I'll be honest. At first, I thought it was because the competitive part of the tournament didn't go the way you wanted it to. Oh, yeah. And when I found you and I saw you a kind of vulnerable that I'd never seen before, when I realized that you had cornered yourself in that way is when I learned, oh, this is a lot more than the tournament. Yeah. It's instances like this where it matters to have somebody in your circle that knows you very well. I think you and I connected a lot throughout my undergraduate experience with humor, right? And so we didn't have a whole lot of serious conversations. And at that moment where I broke down, to see you there, I was kind of like, okay, everything's fine. You know, so it was kind of like, it was grounding me back into who I normally am. And having you there talking to me, helping me understand what was affecting me personally in that moment, but nevertheless reminding me to be resilient was exactly what I needed. What was it like for you after feeling that human moment? It definitely taught me how to say no to things, right? Because I'm constantly compelled to do more. Like, you know, it, are you doing enough to help others or to help others that are in a situation similar to yours? But I, can't, I should do less of it. So at work, I worked at an immigration law firm. That's advocacy right there, even though I'm getting paid to do it. In school, my major was Latino Latin American studies. That could be advocacy later on when I actually implement those skills. And on the speech team, that's advocacy because I'm literally advocating topics that were typically aligned with immigrant struggle. And so do I really need to be putting in more time doing interviews and you know going on TV or going to vigils and stuff? That was a humbling experience in teaching me that I'm not Superman. Caesar did not get deported in 2019. Immigrants' rights groups won a lawsuit in U.S. District Court that kept TPS holders from being immediately deported during that time. But it didn't end there. The roller coaster continues. A federal court of appeals challenged this decision last year, putting TPS statuses for El Salvador and other countries in jeopardy once again. So, it's 2021, and obviously some time has passed since Caesar's breakdown. He graduated from college. He still lives in Nebraska. He's now a law student at Creighton University there. And he's still juggling school and some advocacy work just a little less than before. I still keep myself knee deep in this area, even though I know what it's done to me, but I try to keep it from personally hurting me. Caesar knows he's standing on the shoulders of activists who've come before him, activists who've burned out like him, but keep doing the work. He wanted to talk with someone who really just gets that burnout feeling. Who better to talk to than Pomona College professor 
And don't forget, first-gen Salvadoran immigrant Arely Zimmerman. I'm really excited to do this because um, I, I care a lot about immigration, immigration law, and the immigrant experience. Sure. Um, nice to meet you, Caesar. I'm also really looking forward to this, and um, I think it's such an important... Arely is the expert on the history behind Salvadoran activism. But, you know, Caesar knows a lot himself because of all the work that he's done. It was kind of this really powerful way to reinforce to each other why TPS activism never stops. The reason why it's so important is that many of the communities that are protected by TPS, you know, have been in the country for 20 years. So the idea that they're a temporary community is really not supported by the facts. Um, temporary protected status or temporariness has really turned into permanence. And so that has made it so that a community that are long-term residents don't actually have a status that really reflects their standing in the community. So what kind of activism do you see in the Salvadoran slash TPS community? How is that different from maybe other types of political activism that you might see in other, not just immigrant movements, but other political movements? There's a meaningful difference, right? If you look at the DACA-mented folks and the Dreamer movement, it's been largely focused on students. And the university campuses, where students have quite a bit of social capital, they have their student groups that have really been you know, a center of organizing for the Dreamer movement, whereas Tepecianos, as they're calling, referring to themselves, it's tough because a lot of Tepecianos work in construction, they work as domestic workers, and so it's very hard, right, to balance work with activism. And the fact that they're doing it is a testament to the organizations that were a legacy of Salvadoran organizing, like CARES and the Central American Research Center has the National TPS Alliance, right? And many of the folks that work with the National TPS Alliance are folks that have experience working around refugee issues from the 1980s. Um, So those are some of the differences that I see. It does seem that being rooted in, in a university setting provides more stability because you know, generally it's harder to get kicked out of university than it is to get fired. So you have more fragile roots for that political movement. And I think that can create burnout. Have you talked to other immigrant rights activists and specifically TPS rights activists who have experienced a similar sort of burnout? You know, I've heard so many stories like this, both from my own students, um, from folks in, in different movements. It's a very real thing. You know, while we tend to see, you know, this narrative of the dreamer or the TPS activist, and we hold them up as heroic and we romanticize the figure, right, of the dreamer, there's also a lot of pressure that comes with that, right? The pressure of being the best, being a valedictorian or being very involved in your community, being the super citizen. We ask of immigrants what we don't ask of of U.S.-born citizens. And uh, the expectations and the cost of proving yourself worthy Mm -hmm. and that you belong is very high. Some would say almost inhumane. I'm not surprised that you have and have had these emotions arise. And I just want to say you're not alone. So I want to ask you about how the TPS community copes with that then. And before you answer, I I just want to say what keeps me grounded, even when I experience emotions like that, is really 
the richness of Salvadoran culture. And I think this is something you'll get a kick out of, but you know, even just visiting my parents and I, I don't want to be cliche and bring up pupusas just for fun, <laughs> but um, you know, just being able to remind myself that I come from a country that has a very rich heritage, a country that's also rich in faith. So what I have found for me to help me cope is reminding myself that I come from a country that at the end of the day is super rich in something greater than just immigration papers. Um, I agree with you that, you know, that that's something that really stands out whenever you go to a TPS rally. What do we want? Protection. When do we want it? Now. Is you always notice that, right? That there's a lot of joy, a sense of community and solidarity in the midst of that uncertainty. And I, I don't think it would have been possible if you think back to the sanctuary movements and the Central American Peace and Solidarity movements that were really impulsed by refugees, people that you know I've talked to and that I've interviewed who came here as young people with nothing, right? And they were being persecuted by their own governments and had to face you know, a persecution here by ICE and, and the INS. I don't think you could do all of that activism without having a rich base of both cultural and associational ties. And I think on a more practical level, when burnout happens, you need to be able, Caesar, to say, I'm going to step away. And I can be assured and that I trust that someone else can step in. Right. And in order to have that, we need to continue to cultivate the leadership and the identity of young Central Americans, because there's so much negativity and so much misrepresentation of our communities that um, I think that the only way to sort of combat that and to combat burnout is to develop leadership in youth. So I want to get into the gravity of why people often feel burned out. And I think that ultimately has to do with what's at stake at the end of the day, right? There's a lot of evidence to show that the founding fathers understood the effect of banishment and how cruel that really was. Do you think the American people really understand the gravity of what deportation does? And to those that don't understand, could you talk about what the nature of that is? So that's a great question. I think what people fall back on, Caesar, and I don't know if you would agree, is that if folks committed a crime, that these folks are criminalized, right? So people see people in detention, people see folks or, or hear folks getting deported and they go, they must have done something wrong. Most people don't understand that those that are detained can be detained for something as small as, you know, running a stop sign. And so there are many reasons why folks can be detained and the majority of are non-criminal offenses or, or not felonies. It's a frame that immigrant rights activists have to contend with and also debunk because it's really not based in fact. This constant kind of debunking and framing of what he's gone through and who he is, especially when it comes to talking about himself, it's something Caesar has to do constantly and it can be exhausting, even with people who know him and are friends with him. It is what contributed to Caesar's burnout, and it's something he wanted to revisit with his former speech coach, Cam. Especially what Cam thought about him the first time that they met. 
One of the first issues we've talked about was me knowing that I knew more than some of my classmates about certain things. Yeah. And, I, and the way I described it was being conceited, right? Do you think students that have to grow up with a lot of adversity, and particularly students of color, do you think they need to be a little bit conceited? Because in some ways it takes so much confidence for them to overcome that adversity while also trying to live very successful lives? I think that people that have faced a lot of challenges, particularly students of color, particularly immigrants in the United States, when they come to college, they've spent a lot of their life fighting to be heard. And so sometimes that fighting spirit can be misinterpreted as conceitedness or overconfidence. And so meeting you, then somebody might say, oh, he's conceited. But like now, I know you were just busting your butt. <laughs> what do you want people that don't know about TPS or, or people with your status and, and people like you, what do you want us to know uh, in order to make you feel more welcome or comfortable so that you don't feel like you get to that tipping point? It's something that's gonna sound really nerdy at first, but I promise there's, there's a real human value to it. And that's that people don't often recognize the significance of something until they know what the punishment could be or what the remedy could be. Basically, what's the outcome of all this gonna be as soon as it takes full effect? And for most of the issues that are related to immigration, you know, there's big differences between DACA and TPS and asylum. These are all very distinct areas of law, but at the end of the day, what people are fearful of is deportation. And so what I would wanna get people to understand is that Deportation, at one point, our country considered deportation or banishment to be akin to death, a death penalty in a lot of ways, because you lose everything. And so I would want people to learn the significance that deportation can have on somebody's life and how much violence it can have on what they own. Not necessarily what they own in, in terms of their you know, their property, but what they have in their life, the relationships they've built, the goals that they've achieved, and the aspirations that they still have. In a case called Sanchez v. Mayorkas, the Supreme Court will decide whether TPS holders can pursue permanent residency. As of this recording, the Supreme Court has not yet released its opinion deciding the case. Also at this time, the Department of Homeland Security says folks from El Salvador with TPS can stay here until at least this fall. As for Caesar, after law school, he wants to defend people from being deported. But one day, he hopes to make structural changes to the entire immigration system in the U.S. This is such big work, but it isn't all of Caesar. What makes you feel happy? Uh, funny enough, stepping away from all of this, being able to just hang out with family. My wife, who I, I just married less than a year ago, 
playing video games, and hanging out with my friends. At the end of the day, even though I'm 23 years old, <laughs> I still live like a teenager in a lot of ways. Um, even though I want to do serious work, I hope I never become a serious person and that I limit whatever seriousness I carry with myself to something that can actually help people. But I mean, if there's none of that going on, then <laughs> honestly, I could just be watching Lord of the Rings all day. <laughs> Thanks so much to Cesar Magaña Linares for sharing his story with us. Thanks also to his former speech coach, Cam Logston, and to Professor Arely Zimmerman at Pomona College. To watch a video interview with Cesar and find more Where We Come From audio and video stories, visit npr.org. I'm Anjali Sastry, creator and producer of Where We Come From. Michael Zamora is our visuals producer and editor. Julia Furlan is our senior editor. Diba Motasham is our assistant producer. Additional editing and production by Leah Danella and Jess Kung. Candice Vocourtcamp and Sarah Knight contributed research and fact-checked this episode. Josh Newell provided audio engineering for this episode. Nicole Werbeck is our supervising visual editor. Yolanda Sanguini is our director of programming. And gotta give some shout-outs to Christina Kala, Brent Bachman, Kamari Devarajan, Melissa Gray... Karen Grigsby-Bates, KGB, Shireen Marisol-Maraji, and Andrea Gutierrez for their help on this episode and support of the entire series. I couldn't have done it without you. Special thanks also to Creighton University for letting us record on their campus. Thanks also to the Neiman Journalism Foundation Visiting Fellowship Program. And huge shout out to the entire Code Switch fam for letting Where We Come From crash their show this week. I'm Anjali Sastry. Bye! A special thanks to our funder, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, for helping to support this podcast. An officer pins a 16-year-old to the ground and punches out his teeth. But are there any consequences for the cop? For the first time, we take you inside the secret investigations that show how police protections in California shield officers from accountability. Listen to On Our Watch, a podcast from NPR and KQED. KQED.